Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The LitFest salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There is food, drink, and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 13, 2013, the topic of the salon was, Yes, You Can, Writing in a Subjective World. The featured writers were Vicki Lindner, Catherine Hope, Mario Acevedo, and Robin Black. Thank you for being here. This is one of the salons I've really been looking forward to. Um, I look forward to them all, but this one, I feel, has the potential of breaking out into fighting. (laughs) And... That has been my dream. Those of you who know me, that has been my dream since we started Lighthouse. Is that just fisticuffs, you know, rolling on the... No, I, I don't think it will at all. But the, the topic for tonight has to do with the subjectivity of art. And that keeps coming up. Like, how many of you were here at the David Robleski agent talk? This Yeah. So oh, it kept coming up, the subjectivity of art. And it feels, again, just like the heat, like an abstraction until you're sitting there writing and you allow yourself, which is a weak thing to do and I would never do this, you allow yourself to think, who would ever want to read this? And, and not just who would ever want to read this in an abstract way, but who would actually pay me to publish this? And you know, then it starts getting in your head, which I don't recommend and it never happens to me. <laughs> Like I said, no. Um, but so then it becomes this really concrete thing, the subjectivity of art, because it affects you. And so we have this panel of illustrious writers. They're all sitting in the front row, so I'm going to just lay down there when you guys get up here. Um, and they're each going to come up and talk about different angles on this. Vicky was telling me up by the, um, the wine, um, or the beer... by the wine Um, everybody's kind of angling this a little bit differently in terms of the subjectivity question which is fine, that's what we want right? I mean we we don't want everybody to come up and say different versions with thesaurus words of the same thing so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce our panel and then they're going to get up here and talk to you and, and then you have an opportunity to participate in this as well, we would love to hear from everybody so Mario Acevedo. He writes best-selling Felix Gomez detective vampire series for HarperCollins. His vampire character is also featured in the graphic novel Killing the Cobra. There's a lot more about Mario, but that's that's a start. Um, Robin Black's story collection, If I Loved You, I Would Tell You This, was published by Random House, who will also publish her first novel next year, Life Drawing. Her work has appeared in the Southern Review, the New York Times Magazine, One Story, Colorado Review, and elsewhere. Catherine Hope is a professional editor and has written for numerous papers and magazines. Her first novel is represented by the Bond Literary Agency. She's now at work on her second. She also teaches some stuff for Lighthouse and takes fabulous photographs. Um, Vicki Lindner's novel, Outlaw Games, was published by Dial. Her short stories and essays have appeared in Plowshares, Fiction, The Kenyan Review, and elsewhere. Let's give a hand to our four panelists. Are you guys going to come up in the mass? We're going to come up in the mass. All right. Okay. And then there's some more microphones to pass around. Okay. We have to. We do have to use them, right? 
I think so, yes. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay, uh, the name of this panel is also Yes We Can, or maybe Why Can't We? But um, we are here to discuss the how we survive the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in our literary careers, the um, cruel and heartless and rejection letters that seem to be written by um, uh, the Supreme Court in the sky, right? Our, um, often our families and acquaintances who don't seem to understand why, as my boyfriend Richard puts it, we are in our rooms alone grinding away when perhaps we could be doing something more constructive, like, say, earning more money, volunteering in a meaningful way, um, throwing the old ball around for the kid, you know, whatever, right? And, um, and also the thing that, and for me this is kind of what subjectivity is all about, we often have to survive our own dark sides, right? Our shadow sides and our personal demons, which also say perhaps you shouldn't be doing this or you should be doing it differently. Um, so yesterday, in preparation for this, the four of us gathered at, at uh, one of our local um, drinking spots, Cavo, and after a number of libations and uh, ill-advised um, pre-dinner snacking, as uh, Mario said, bring on the gluten, you know, we, um, <laughs> we ended up sort of getting a lot of energy going, and there was a lot of pointing and voice raising and affirmations and some people even confided um, secrets. I was dumb enough to tell my actual age and Mario told us that he never really was very interested in vampires at all. And um, I won't tell what these guys said because it's too personal. So, um, and so we're hoping that uh, we are going to be able to bring some of that energy and dynamism that we experienced in the rehearsal to the real event tonight. But we did have to come up with sort of a plan. So our sort of a plan is everybody is going to talk um, briefly about um, why they write and what helps them and stops them. And also bring in some of the idea of you know, bringing into that theme perhaps something about their ideas about what subjectivity is. So uh, we've sort of pressured Robin, who actually wrote an essay that says that subjectivity is what the literary marketplace is really all about, although it pretends to be the Supreme Court in the sky, right? Uh, we know and your work was no good, right? Um, so uh, she's going to go first, followed by um, Catherine, and then you, Mario. Okay. Okay. And then me, because I'm also a participant. I'm also a participant. She's also a participant. <laughs> I don't think I'm saying anything she said I was going to say. So here come the fisticuffs. Uh, I am going to read a little bit because I'm exhausted from teaching you wonderful people enough that I worried what would happen if I had the combination of a microphone and no script. So I want to begin with my favorite line from my least favorite review of my book. Even the name Robin Black. <laughs> 
has, <laughs> has a pseudonym ring, the primary flashes of the songbird alongside the void, the veil of death, <laughs> the blot in the lab results. <laughs> My mother's response to this was, that's exactly what your father and I had in mind. <laughs> I was somewhat less able to be jocular. On, on a more serious note, I actually think this is an excellent example or exemplar of the fact that we live in a culture of critics and critiques. Surely the man who wrote these lines and similarly florid, similarly negative ones about my stories would scoff at the notion that he might as well have said, also, I don't like her name. <laughs> he didn't like my stories and he didn't like my name. There may be other people out there who don't like my name, but community standards make it unlikely that they'll ever tell me. I should mention he's Australian. <laughs> Certainly, there are also other people who dislike my fiction. And here comes the punchline. There are people who dislike your fiction, too. Your poems, your essays. And now I'm going to tell you something you already know. These people have no role in your writing process. They will be in your workshops, though, and they will send you emails that begin with words like, unfortunately, and although, and even thank you. But in an ideal world, as far as you are concerned, they don't exist. They don't exist because, I want to reiterate, because they inevitably exist. The fact that some people won't like your work is one of the two most common reasons people cite for quitting this pursuit. The other is that you yourself don't like your work. <laughs> and here's the thing. Neither of these two conditions is in any way indicative, much less decisive, on the question of whether you should go on writing, because both are inevitable. Your work cannot appeal to everyone, and that must be neither a goal nor an impediment. And you will, at times, hate your own work, which means that doing so is also not a sign that you should hate your work. So whose opinion should you care about? You should care about the opinions of people who are excited by your work and may have some thoughts on improving it further. You should care about the opinions of those people who may not, may not like your work, but who quite possibly aren't thinking in terms of whether they like it or not, but share insights and suggestions that resonate with you. But first, foremost, and finally, you should care about your own opinion of whether the work you produce is the best work you can produce, and about whether you have in any way slacked off about whether you have given it your all. And with that, pep talk, I'm going to turn it over to the lovely Catherine Hope. Thank you. Hi. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly try to put in a nutshell um, the last couple of years of experience that I've had with publishing, which has been amazing, um, but not what I expected. So going back into the dark ages, I was born into a family under a curse of near misses. Uh, my father was a very bohemian Greenwich Village drunk who wrote a very good biography of Hemingway and had a handshake publication deal on it, which fell through. 
my mother was um, a, a young, you know, Greenwich Village drunk too. But she, uh, she <laughs> later on uh, wrote a, a novel about two young girls caught up in the worst hurricane in the history of Rhode Island. And had had an, uh, a publisher just waiting for her to do the revisions to publish it, and she didn't get the revisions done, and so that went away. So that was her near miss. My brother is an astrophysicist who um, has a series, a, a sci-fi series, which has just recently become a near miss. And the story of my own near miss is that <laughs> I <laughs> I wrote I wrote a novel about the death of my best friend. Um, but it was one of those things where I flogged and flogged and flogged this poor novel until it just begged me to let it rest. So while it was resting, I picked up another novel and wrote that and finished it and was fortunate enough to get it uh, represented. And my agent sent it to some really, really fine people. And um, there were a number who liked it. There were a number who rejected it for reasons that I'll explain to you later, which will just crack you up. Um, but while I was in this process, there were a couple of editors who will remain nameless who um, actually wanted me to park that project and work on a project for them. So I was in an audition period of working on this project for them when things didn't go well. And the marketing people were not wild about it. So that, that, that went away. Meanwhile, my parked novel turned out to have been parked for too long and had cooled off. So that was my near miss. Um, but what I learned in that whole process was a lot about subjectivity. Because there were so many people who disliked or loved my novel for reasons I never would have expected. Um, and in working on the next one, I'm trying to forget all of that because it's irrelevant to the work. So um, we'll move on. And Well, one of the things that I wanted to say was that there's also a period in, in this whole subjective process where you feel a little bit like a fish who lives somewhere where the, the water's been struck by lightning. And so you feel stunned for a little while. That's, it kind of stays with you for a while. And again, it's, it's because you become a victim of opinion. And so it's something that it's really important to learn to overcome. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, too. Mario? Okay, first of all, um, I want to thank you all for being here tonight, and I also want to thank the wonderful people of Lighthouse, the faculty and the staff, and particularly the volunteers who make all this possible. <laughs> we had Martha, right, come all the way here from uh, Atlanta, and she said, and I, and I happened to mention this in, in the workshop that we did earlier today, that there is no other place like Lighthouse, and she chimed in and said, "Yes, there is no other place." And I felt so smart because I had I had validation of that. Um, so yeah, thank you all for being here. Uh, and I also want to say that they've done something new this year at Lighthouse. We've opened up what it means to be creative in that they've brought in outside artists, and one of them is Renee Farkas, who's got work here. Um, 
full disclosure, I've also got some stuff here on the second floor. But we also have things, if you remember, uh, Carla Madison, who was the uh, councilwoman representative for the Five Points area and a big proponent of the arts. Her uh, work is on the first floor. They have... Um, um, no, no, on the second floor, excuse me, the second floor parlor uh, from her estate. So you can see some of that. So that's pretty awesome. Um, another thing is that there are going to be questions. We're going to expect questions. And if there are no questions, we're going to ask you, okay? And we're going to point to you. And you're going to have to stand up and say your name and say a question. Ask a question, okay? So the pressure's on. So when the time to ask questions, you better start putting your hand up. Uh, now, me, I'm very resentful that I'm on this panel because I do not want to be associated with rejection, okay? I, I want people to ask me, Mario, what, how, can you, how do you do with rejection? I want to be able to say, what's that, okay? I want to be like world super famous, right? I, I'm, I'm vain enough to admit that I want people like Nelson Mandela to say, Mario, your book changed my life, Okay? <laughs> Really, I mean that's that's what I want, okay, and 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 it pains me that I'm not able to say that, okay. So I do feel bad about having to expound a little bit knowledgeably, unfortunately, about having to deal with rejection uh, and the subjectivity on that. And uh, I think it was uh, Samuel Goldwyn who said about the movie business: nobody knows nothing. Okay, and one of my favorite quotes that I use in my writing classes is from uh, W. Somerset Mom, who said, there are three rules for writing a novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to get really serious and follow my own uh, script about what we were supposed to talk about, which is why I write. Um, you know, I, I, those of you who have been in my classes have probably heard me often quote from the uh, book uh, by um, uh, Rainier, um, uh, Maria Rainier Rilke, Letters to a Young Poet, um, where this very innocent young poet, just an amateur, wrote to the great poet of his time and said um, and, and started talking to him about his poetry. And um, after a while, uh, the great poet said to him, my dear Mr. Kappas, you know, you are sending me your poems and you are asking me, you know, you're telling me that these editors have rejected them and they have said this and that and thus and so. And he said, you know, I urge you not to do that. And there is something to be said about stopping submitting at some times in your life, right? And he said, um, instead, I would ask you to go deep into yourself and ask what bids me write. And in the darkest hour of the night, if you can honestly say, I will die if I do not write, then arrange your life accordingly. That's the big one, right? And, um, and that, I think, is why I write. Not because I would literally die if I did not write. I'm sure I'd find other things to do, like volunteer. <laughs> but um, what I actually feel is that uh, the part of me that my intellectual self and my emotional self and the um, part of me that um, uh, sort of encounters my own reality would die. Because the, I do it in words and through writing, and I've been writing and publishing since I was about 15. So if it was taken away from me, it would be like a huge um, vacancy in my self-concept. And, you know, to ask, like, what makes it hard for me? 
Um, you know, there's rejection, yes. And, you know, I've probably been, you know, I've had good luck in my writing and I've had bad luck. And But I'm not a real great book writer, I'll confess. And I have a lot of book manuscripts that are in the drawer and many of them will probably stay there forever. Um, on the other hand, I'm quite successful at publishing short stories and essays, but a book is a thing. And we live in a very thing-oriented culture, whereas if it doesn't have a thingness and money attached to it, in a way it's no proof, right? Which is one of the reasons I think a lot of us older writers are quite disturbed by internet publishing, because it, it isn't a thing. Yeah, you can print it out, but that's not got hard copy covers. You can't put it, you know, on your mantelpiece. So, um, but I think there's other things that make it harder for me to write than rejection, and maybe some of this is caused by rejection, but I really suffer from what one of the great Jungians, um, Marie-Louise von Franz, said was the great neurosis of our time, which is restlessness. I'm an extremely restless person. I mean, it's very difficult for me not to be out driving, shopping, you know, swimming. Um, I can always think of something I would rather do than just contain myself, which I think you really do have to do if you want to be a writer. And um, so, you know, how to survive all this? I mean, I, I guess I'll just give my Eastern philosophy tips right now, or some of them, which is, you know, f since, since I was in my 20s, I've been dealing with various forms of Eastern uh, philosophies and meditations and, um, you know, starting with Tai Chi, which makes me sound like, oh, she must be a very spiritual person. Well, I'm terrible at all this stuff. You know, when I was a young woman, like, uh, meditating was kind of like trying to put out a stove fire with a paper towel, you know, but I nevertheless did these things, and of course the thing I liked the best was karate, because it was so violent and aggressive and had so much movement in it, and, um, and but, you know, as I've gotten older, I've also started taking yoga, and, um, and, and along the way, I've picked up a bunch of little tips that, and I think a lot of what happens when you get, you know, when you're being rejected or you're having problems or you're, you know, Nelson Mandela is not, you know, coming forward to read your novel, is that you, um, you can do a lot of talking to yourself in the various ways that you talk to yourself and, and, what's, and what ideas and philosophies help you to survive. And so... Um, you know, one of the things I've come across lately is uh, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Now, he was one of the early founders of yoga, not core yoga, but, you know, the philosophical and um, meditative side. And he said, have expectations, but don't get attached to them. Now, that's a very tricky one for Americans, right? Because we believe that if we expect hard enough and we strive hard enough, um, it will happen, and um, I'll deal with that in another. And then there is the Zen concept of success, which is that it only breeds a desire for more success. In other words, um, once you get attached to the idea of success, um, you'll just continue to want more and more success and be less and less satisfied with the success that you have. In other words, the glass will always be empty or half empty. And I've known people like that. You know, that I would be dying to be in their shoes, and they're miserable, right? Um, and then, you know, there's the other 
one, which I was recently in Morocco, and in every other word, the Moroccans say, inshallah, which is, means God willing. Now, you can substitute luck willing, fate willing, whoever your God is, but it's an important thing to realize that, and this is, again, very not American, that not everything is in your hands or under your control. And that if you, um, you know, you think it is sometimes, like if I just spend 25 more hours a week on Facebook and beef up my Facebook friends, my novel will have to be a success. If I get in my blue van and I drive, as one guy did who wrote about it in Poets and Writers, and drive all over the country, you know, making partnerships with, you know, somehow this will be uh, what I need to do. And it's very hard to realize that you don't control how people are going to react to your work. Or, or when you and that's the, the subjectivity of the marketplace and the people out there, the readers part. We don't really know. I mean, who would have predicted that um, a memoir like Wild about a woman who's so upset about her mother's death that she ruins her life and tries to cure it by doing this brutal hike alone would be on the bestseller list for about a million weeks. What is that? What is it? Would she have projected it? Would any of us have predicted it? Maybe not, right? So to let go of that idea that um, you control everything and inshallah, you know, if you're really lucky, and we've talked about luck last night, right? Maybe something great will happen. And then the other real tip I have is that I don't know if any of you meditate, and believe me, meditation does not come easily for a restless person, um, but I have found that if I just try to, before I check my email and do anything else, if I sit there for 20 minutes and try to clear my mind of all the voices that, as you were saying, you know, say, oh, nobody will read this, and nobody will like this, and, you know, what have you, and just say to those voices, not now. And then I sit down to write. I have a very different writing day than I do ordinarily. And, you know, there's many other, you know, Doris Grumbach talked about praying. She was a religious Catholic when she sat down to, to write. So I think there is something about needing... Um, I, I, one of the famous early writers about um, writing Dorothea Brand said, all geniuses know there are times when they can't write and when they need to reflect, when they need to distance themselves from it. So, you know, that's, that's my tip. So um, but would anybody like to respond to anything anybody else said? <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with all of that. Um, no, I don't. I don't. But I will say that I think that for my taste, and we're supposed to get feisty and argumentative here, right? Okay. Fuck Rilke. I mean, I, I, I don't agree that you have to be somebody who would die if they couldn't write in order to write. I think that that's pompous and self-aggrandizing. And I think it may work for some people, in which case for them it's great. But didn't you for, say last night you would write even if you never knew you would never publish again? Yeah, but I wouldn't die. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, I, I like writing, and I would write even if I knew I was never going to publish again. I really love to write. My mantra, which is like way not Eastern, is the only, maybe it is actually, is the only reason to write is to write. Period. That's what I tell myself. 
The only reason to write is to write. And if you are writing to make money, forget it. If you are writing to be told that you are a beloved person, forget it. More people will dislike you for writing than will like you. <laughs> so I think, you know, it is... The only, the only reason to write is because you feel the desire or need to write. But I don't think, I'm, I'm a little bit allergic to these things that set the bar so high on either passion or discipline or anything like that that sort of tell people who gets to be a writer. I think if you're writing, you get to be a writer, even if you feel like it would be kind of okay if you never wrote again. Like, that's okay, you're still a writer. I'm very into just, like, the permission. I, I also like Internet publishing. I like the fact that the Internet has made it so that more people write. I don't care that most of it is crap, you know? <laughs> because, because I like that people like thinking of themselves as writers. So I, I just want to tell one in the sort of, because I didn't talk about the how do we keep going thing. I'll tell very briefly and then pass on. Um, I had a novel under contract that I pulled out of the contract because I decided it was bad. And I still had the contract and I had to write a novel. And for two and a half years I could not write a novel. And my shrink said something very smart to me after about two and a half years, which was, you can't write this because you have no fantasies about it and you have no ambition for it. All you have is the need to fulfill that fucking contract. And something clicked. And I decided, and by ambitions, she didn't mean you're going to win the Pulitzer, you're going to, just for it to be good. She said, you used to come in here when you were writing short stories and say, I'm going to write the best short story in the world. Now you come in and say, I've got to fulfill this goddamn contract. She said, it's a, you, can't, you can't write that way. So what I did, which helped me, was I picked a writer I admire, somebody who I want to think well of me, and I wrote for her. And that was what worked for me. I wanted to impress a girl. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, you know, which I say just to, to point out that there's a great range. You know, it, it can be yoga, it can be having a girl crush. I mean, it can be whatever. But, but the point is to find out what works for you and not to assume that what worked for, that because what works for someone else doesn't work for you, it means you're not supposed to write. I disagree with some of that. <laughs> I don't... I, as somewhere along the path in reading all of my writer porn, you know, all my books and books and books about how to write and everything... I came to the conclusion that the reason to write is to provide an extraordinary experience for someone else. And so this, is, this became, for me, part of my conundrum in writing, is that I believed that it was my prime responsibility to create something magnificent that would affect someone else. And so I, I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked, and then at some point... That kind of, you know, the, the kind of fair universe idea kind of dropped away where if you work really hard, it, of course, it'll, you know, it'll just fall into place. And I realized, you know, there are, I know 
so many people. There are some in this room who are stunning writers who have not found that publishing sweet spot yet. And I realized that for me, that publishing sweet spot could be a long way away, or it could be tomorrow, you don't know. But the, the conundrum for me was to figure out how to honor my work and, and, and keep my work exciting and enlivening, even in the idea that I'm supposed to be creating this incredible experience for somebody, and yet maybe not, maybe there will never be anybody. You know, there are, there, it's one of those kind of things where I had to find a way to be content with the discomfort of having those th- two things coexist at the same time. So there's I that. I think actually I agree with, I hate to say this, but I kind of agree with some of what you're both saying, which I think that once you get past, you know, that will I die or don't I care, um, you know, the, the, the goal, what you're both talking about is something I've experienced, which is, you know, how can you, I mean, the ultimate challenge of writing is how can I make this thing that I'm writing um, how can I make it work? How can I make it as good as it can be? And it's that, I think, that makes writing so exciting because you never really are so sure you've gotten good at it. You know? And, and there's very little else like that, you know, in life. I mean, and I think that's, um, you know, once you get past all the, the personal angst, whatever that may be, that's what keeps you there is that, is that job that you're doing, and it's ex- and the and the excitement of doing the job in the way that you think is the best. And you're not always right that what you do is the best, but you try, and that's very interesting. That's a very interesting job. I want to hear from Mario, but first I want to say um, I, I just want to say I I said something very similar to my class this morning. I said writing is a very peculiar profession. Because it is presumed that every time you do the task that you are meant to do, you will do it badly at first. So I was saying, you know, so say I get on the airplane to Philadelphia and the pilot says, you know, welcome aboard U.S. Airways. This is a first draft. <laughs> you know, that there just aren't a lot of other professions where there's this presumption that you have to learn it all over again every time. And, and also that, that, there, that, I mean, the way I put it is that being a writer is a commitment to a lifetime of profound doubt. And it's doubt about whether anyone else will like your work. It's doubt about whether you will be able to produce your work. It's doubt about whether you will want to produce your work. It's doubt about whether you will like your work. It's doubt about whether you will think you should be doing this. There is really almost no certainty to it. So it takes a kind of almost daredevil quality in you and also a huge amount of hubris. And this is something that I, I always tell writers, they need to own the hubris. Because, and this is, is a little bit related, I think, to what Catherine was saying, a little different, but because to say that you want to be a writer is to say that you really do believe that people should hear what you have to say. And a lot of us feel it as writers, you know, but we don't want to admit that we think it. And I think you sort of have to own that piece of it also. And now, I don't know if Mario wants I just want to, to put in that, um, I just sure. want to put in before Mario starts that um, Dean Young, the author of this great book, he's a poet, The Art of Recklessness, says that, you know, uh, in order to write well, you have to write horribly. 
um, uh, and, and, and struggle through. And he said, much of what keeps uh, people from writing is they can't stand writing horribly for as long as it takes to write well. Well, my, my key you know, to writing is, is to wear bright socks. So that's, that's what, keeps me, that what keeps me going. What socks am I going to wear today? Um, well, some of my, what am I going to disagree with? Okay. Uh, one of them is, for example, uh, like me, I, I was lucky at, at one time I got a three-book con- uh, publishing deal. And I had one manuscript written. I had a title for the second book, and I had no title for the third book. But I was on the hook. And I had uh, yearly deadlines. So I did not have the luxury of saying, I can't write. Because then they, they're saying, why the hell did you sign that contract to begin with? Uh, and if I would have complained to my other writer friends in, in that, that I met, <laughs> they would have said, you stupid bastard, I'll do it. And you can pay me at year of the advance, and I'll write the book for you. You know, I'll make something up. So... so it, was uh, I had a workshop today, and I, my favorite uh, uh, quote from that was from the artist Chuck Close, who said, "Inspiration is for amateurs." And uh, you go there, and I, I, well, I mean, it's a series, so I kind of understood which way the story is going. But uh, every 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 story is different. That's the challenge uh, of, of writing. Um, People have expectations, but they expect those expectations to be challenged. Uh, they don't want to read the same story again because they're like, why bother? I, I bought it one time. I don't want to buy it twice. Um, so that's, that's what I had, you know, that's what I, what I work with. And um, I don't have a dearth of writing stuff. And I think my, my real defense against, re- is, uh, against rejection is delusion. Okay? Because there's, there's reality and then there's this moat of delusion around me. And then there's me and Mario World and my little castle. And every once in a while, I have to drop the, the gate and let, like, I have to address bills and the IRS and stuff. So I let them cross over and let them go back. But everything else, especially my writing, I stay behind my delusion thinking, okay, I can somehow, I'm, I'm committed. I have, to, I have to make money writing, okay? I'm 57 years old. I can't go back. What am I going to go back to? Work at 7-Eleven or something like this? I can't go back to my engineering career because they're going to say, what the hell have you been doing for the last 20 years? I'm going to say, I've been writing. Well, tough. You know, maybe you can work in the mailroom or something. See? So I'm committed to writing. I'm committed to writing, and I do a lot of freelance writing, so I have to write well. And I, my, my clients come up to me, and they say, well, I want you to write this, and I have to impress them with, with my writing and I don't have the luxury of saying well you know I need the check but I don't have inspiration right now okay I don't I can't afford to do that um, so I do have that drive I have to pay the rent I have to pay the bills uh, with, with my writing and um, so that's a that's a pretty big motivator okay for me um, and I wish sometimes I didn't have to do that. I wish sometimes I could take the chance uh, or take the opportunity and the time to maybe kind of explore some other things, be a bit more experimental. Uh, and uh, But at the same time, I know that sometimes people don't want experimental. They want what they are familiar with, and they want to uh, enjoy that. Okay, They don't want to always be challenged. Um, they want something, particularly I write fiction, and my uh, take on fiction is it's entertainment. right? And that's what people want. They want an escape. And it's my job to give them the kind of escape that they want. So. I think money can be a big inspiration. <laughs> I, think, uh, I couldn't disagree with you more, but let's let's take let's take. Or should we have that? Uh, let's take a few questions from the audience, uh, or we're going to come drag you up here. No, but no, seriously. 
I have a question, and it may be off-topic for the salon, so feel free to say, let's park that. Almost nothing is off-topic for this salon. I don't even know what the topic is. <laughs> we got very lost in the topic. So, uh, well, you know, we talked about a little bit about this internet publishing or electronic media publishing, and one of the things I found interesting recently, so sort of like we used to buy albums and now we buy songs, um, I thought, you know, is this electronic publishing maybe a better venue for short story writing? In other words, I bought recently, you know, not too long ago, just a short story of somebody, you know, and it, it's nice because it gave me a flavor for their writing. You know, it's not everything, of course, but is in that any way helpful? I know you don't make any money, or at least I've heard of electronic publishing, but is that something that would create something for writers from that standpoint? Is that something that would give people a flavor so where they might go buy the book or at least give you an audience for short stories which aren't as popular in, you know, in traditional media as, as novels? If you bought the short story, the author made some money. But Yeah, so they made some money, but, um, but you know, compared to if I bought a hard copy book of their published short stories, I'm thinking, I don't really know. Does anybody know anything about well, that? Well, uh, a, a little bit. Um, okay. I, I, the, the one is like, for example, Amazon. Um, if it's two ninety nine, that's the threshold. If it's below that, the, the author gets 30% of, of the price. Or well, if it's two ninety nine and above, the author gets 70%, okay. which is a pretty good deal. And I know some people who were frustrated with the traditional publishing route and decided to... Um, e-publish their works and have managed to quit their jag jobs. They've done very well. Uh, I think the big thing that e-publishing has done is that it has opened up the distribution, and particularly for short stories, because it used to be if a short story came out, it usually came out an anthology, uh, unless you were picked up by a major publisher, you know, how, how did people get a hold of it? And it's also, the short story is also a, a medium that's very conducive to people reading on the way to work. They have the whole story right there. They're not they're not obligated to wade through 400 pages. They can read something in maybe an hour or less. So that's what really helped a lot of a lot of people. And I mean, there's a lot of things that were that were done. A lot of my friends who have, for example, a series, and in between, when you're working in the novel, you write short stories about that character, or you can take asides, like a secondary character maybe the love interest, and then maybe write the backstory about the love interest in a short story or a novella. So that gave them an opportunity to kind of build their world and make a little bit of money off of it. So it, I, I think it works that way. Now, the reality is that 75% of the money still comes from traditional publishing. Okay. So, uh, and there are some people I know who wrote great stories and they didn't make any money on it. And I know other people who didn't had done fantastically uh, well with it. And and unfortunately, there's a subjectivity right there. You're you're putting it right out to the marketplace, and the marketplace is the one deciding right there whether or not you're gonna they're gonna go with your book or not. Also, there are a lot of magazines that publish uh, literary magazines even um, that publish online uh, components like narrative, and um, I think it's free, isn't it? Narrative, and you know, and then there's like uh, different magazines, like the Kenyan Review. I mean, they'll send you like a reading for the week, and it's, um, you know, you can read that online. There's lots and lots and lots of online magazines that you can just access without subscribing. So yeah, I mean, it. it as you, who said that it offers a lot of people a lot of opportunity to publish. Um, the problem for writers is that a lot of this stuff is not really juried. 
Um, in other words, there's nobody who's really made the decision that this is good or bad. Now, we hate all those decisions, especially when they decide we're bad. But there is something to it, you know, that people actually are... I mean, I can write a short story tomorrow, and I can put it up on my own personal website, and you can read it for free. But um, so can 8 million other people. So how do you start can I, separating? Can I ask a question? That's right. 8 million people can do that. Who does that harm? I, this is the thing I always wonder about the people who really object to the idea that there can be crappy fiction online. Is like, what is the damage? There is actually? no damage. There's yeah, no damage. So I mean, I think it's I, I think it's kind of cool that everybody can have a blog and can decide that they want to post their fiction and let the marketplace decide what they want, and you know, just let it sort itself out that way. I'm I'm good with that. I can tell you the electronic short story thing mm, for short story writers. It's it's a mixed bag because. You can end up with enough short stories online that people can access for free that they really don't have to buy your book. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sort of tipping that point right now. And so it's, it's not true that every time you read it online, I make money. Because if you go to Hunger Mountain and read a short story of mine, I'm not making any money. And so it's, it's kind of a mixed blessing that they can be split off like that, I think. I was wondering if we could talk about rejection, because I know that's something that we, some of us proposed a whole panel on rejection, and I think we're kind of getting into that when, because on, on the, you know, when uh, 8 million people publish their stories on the web, there really is no such thing as rejection anymore, um, so we could be glad, you know, but I mean, m- many of you probably have experience getting the, these slips that seem to come you know, from some strangely anonymous source, and they're completely impersonal, and they start with, what did you say, although, and thank you, and and they're clearly not meant to you. And um, uh, I want to wonder if our panelists might want to comment on that a bit. Mar- Mario, you've never been rejected. Yes, you have. You told me yesterday. Yes, we've all been rejected, and many it's facets of life. And many facets of life. And you had some very interesting observations last night at the bar about why men are more capable of dealing with rejection than women, which is in fact a documented fact. Uh, the Vita report said that when uh, women, men get rejected by say anything, yes, I, I, I call foul. I don't <laughs> well, there are, I'll have to say that after I, talk, I mentioned that last night, I, I have to not all men to that quite a bit because what what the comment was that uh, uh, it had to do with the, the mating thing in that men have to ask women right from the very beginning. Men are conditioned that you have to ask women either to dance, you want to go out. Well, women stay back and wait for the men to come to them. However, a lot of men don't like that situation. They don't like that scenario, okay? And uh, uh, they don't like that kind of uh, that attitude. Like some guys are like the bar thing or going to a dance. Like a lot of men are really good at picking up women at a bar. Other men hate that situation. They do not want to meet women in that kind of situation because they're, they're very uncomfortable that way. They would rather go maybe in a, in a situation like this where the connection they can make with a woman is just a lot more comfortable and open for them. And they do not like that idea of, of rejection that way. Work in work, 
men take a lot of comments to heart that a lot of women uh, may find a little easier to digest. Because the men tend to... Uh, getting, getting judged by another man sometimes really bugs the hell out of you and you want to kill him. Right? And, and not necessarily kill him, but maybe hit him on the head with a big club. Right. So, uh, so men don't like to be judged by other men in a bad way. We talked about how men, uh, when they talk to one another in a very social sense, can be very vulgar and very demeaning. But outside of that, they don't, they don't really like to hear that. If, if you're in a social sense, you come up to guy, man, that shirt really sucks, that's stupid. The guy's like, hey, you want to wear this shirt. You know, they're okay with that. But in a professional situation, the boss wants to say, you know... Why the hell are you wearing that shirt? And the guy was like, oh my God. My favorite shirt. Yeah, it's my favorite shirt. But I mean, when I said that it has been documented, this Vita report actually said that there were editors who wrote in it. This was the report that showed, and you'll probably hear about this more on another panel, where um, people did these surveys and showed that a lot of the major publications, including literary ones, were publishing less than 50% women, often many less than 50% women. And... um, and editors wrote in and they said, you know, uh, when we tell a man, you know, we encourage a man, uh, he'll send back like 300, you know, manuscripts right away to us, whereas women often do not, um, when you reject them, they do not apply again, even if we have asked them to. And I know that I am guilty of this and I don't consider myself a typical woman. So, you know, like, I, I always think, like, well, if they didn't like that, they won't like this. And I've made some, like, awful mistakes that way where, you know, I just didn't go for it once I was rejected, uh, which meant I guess I was taking it harder than perhaps I should have for uh, personal childhood. Because re- your reactions to rejection, I think, always go back to your family and your childhood and how you dealt with it and how you were treated. And... um I also think that it's hard for today's writers who've come up through the workshop process to get these form rejection letters uh, from agents or um, editors of any kind that just basically say no with no comment about the work because if you've been in workshops, you've been getting feedback on every single thing you wrote. Um, and and um, and so suddenly to have the hit this wall where you know you're getting the same rejection letter as eight million other people is can be very uh, difficult psychologically. I want to say one more thing about that. I'm sorry. searching for a reason why, and that sounds like shifting the blame back to the women in a way that doesn't seem... What if, doesn't Tiffany, when you get a rejection, do you immediately send sound. another piece? Do you, I mean, do you, I mean, how many I send pieces, pieces. yeah. That's, I, I, that sounds I like both. an Yeah, right. I I guess I don't like necessarily being put into a box that says I don't take rejection. Well, all boxes and all rules will always have exceptions. There's no question that we're talking about all women or all men. No, I know. I don't think I am an exception is what I said. I think I was surprised to find that I actually kind of met the stereotype, you know, which I was surprised at. But we have somebody who's asking, there's his hand raised there. Um, Going back to the uh, sort of the form rejection letter and how that's not good in in your view. I I work, I'm an intern for the Kenyan Review. We have to read all the, we have to read the slush pile. We get like, 
not not just the interns who read the slush pile, but the magazine itself gets over 3,000 submissions a semester. Yeah, I know these stories. You can't, you can't even, I mean, and, and there's, um, I mean, we, you know, we have like these criteria that we're supposed to read for, and that we, you know, have to, like, acknowledge when, if, you know, a story is good enough or whatever. Um, but, like, the, even if it's a very good story, but it doesn't fit the magazine at, at that time, we can't take the time out and, and say, you know, we, this is all the things we liked about your story, but we can't publish it right now. So we just have to say no. It doesn't necessarily mean we didn't like it, because I, I know there's been stories that some of my friends and I have like really liked and that we've passed up to the editors, but they've said no because, you know, either they don't fit in, in the print issue, they don't, you know, the myriad reasons that don't necessarily right. speak to the quality of the writing. And like if we were if we sent out personalized rejection letters Given, given the, the sheer volume of submissions we get, would be very unfeasible. Which, which actually... Yeah. Would, which, which reminds me of the best advice I can give people about, about sending stuff out and getting rejected. You know, I think that one of the reasons the rejections hurt so much is that they confirm something we already think which is that we shouldn't be doing this, there, that, that, we, that some of us think, anyway. And what I always try to do is, when I submit something, I try to remind myself that I am not asking for permission to be a writer. I am not asking if I'm good enough to be a writer. All I'm asking is exactly what he just said, which is, does this editor or this journal need or want this piece at this time? And that's it. They don't get to say, you're no good. They don't get to say, you shouldn't be doing this. And to the extent that that's what the rejections feel like, that's what I'm bringing to it. That isn't what they're saying. They're just saying exactly what he just said, which is, this piece does not suit our needs at this time. Maybe they hate it. Maybe they like it. But all the stuff that goes with that, which is the like, oh shit, I better stop writing, that's coming from inside. And if I could make a really quick point about uh, rejection letters, like I, the way I, I got over like getting rejection letters was I, I thought like you know, if say you're a baker and your job is to bake bread, you're not going to freak out when your baguette doesn't turn out. You know, like you're just gonna be like, okay. I'll throw this one out and do it again. Oh, I would always forget in my baguette. Didn't turn <laughs> Good point. But Especially if it takes five years to write your baguette. Your baguette is a poem, and maybe it took you a week. Like you're, it's, it's not like that week was you know thrown out. You can still you can edit your poem slash baguette and then like resubmit it somewhere. It like it's not like it's not like the journal is saying you suck as a writer go do something else they're just like like I said they're just saying we don't want it right now Anna you had your hand up I'd like to know I don't know much about the process do you see the um, the way it's set up for you do you see whether the author is male or female do you see their name yeah 
Uh, so when you're reading this slush pile, which seems enormous, yeah. are you just reading the stories, or do you see if it's a male or a female? Uh, we get we get their bio. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting that you get the bio. It'd be I wonder if there would be a difference if you don't you get the bio afterwards. You read the story I mean, you get, and you get the, the way it's set up. You get the story or the poem or whatever, and then you have to physically click. Oh, you do. You have so, to physically yeah. click, or at least for the Kenyan review. I can't sleep. I can't speak to. Right, right. I'm just trying to learn about the process. Um, and so, like, something the Kenyan review is was one of the paper. Uh, the, the literary magazine is one of the few that the Vita report did say published equal um, numbers of men and women. Yeah, the uh, like you you get the story or the poem or whatever, and then. At the end of that, you have to click a button, and then you get their code. I like that. I think that's true. So I, I don't know if that's how. I've never worked with another journal. Are you raising your hand? Yeah. This is um, a bit of a change of topic back to when you were talking about reviews. So after you've been published, and, you, and uh, I had an author who writes YA novels. I can't remember her name, um, but she said that after she published her first book, she read some reviews were good, some were bad. The bad ones were really bringing her down. She read one review where it sounded like the reviewer completely understood her book and really loved it for what she loved it for, and it was like the perfect review. So she put that up on her bulletin board, and she said she's never read a single review since. Because the only thing that mattered was the one that really got her book. And I just want, that sounds really sort of dreamy to me, to there are people who say they do that, and then there are those of us who don't believe them. <laughs> so, just to, you know, a lot of writers say that. They say, I don't read my reviews. I don't look at my reviews. Um, you know, I, I don't personally believe that that's true of many of them, and I know people who are, you know, unbelievably successful writers who will text me and say like, oh my god, I got two one-star reviews on Goodreads. And you would think like, why do you care? And they care. And it hurts their feelings. You know, that's, the, that's another thing that, that, like, when you get a review that's actually mean, it hurts because it feels personal. It, that, that is a different category from should I write or should I not write. But just people are mean. And and they don't and it's like there's not a real human being over here. They just forget, and that's a kind of the internet wall thing. One of the things that I find fascinating about reviews, and I hate reading mine, and I do, is um, is are the the many many that say, why did she think I would want to read this? You know, and it never occurred to me that. I was writing because I thought somebody else would want to read it. I was writing just to write. And and it's just a funny thing, you know, this sort of weird, weirdly intimate personal relationship between these people who don't know each other but who are saying like what are essentially very personal things. I don't know. I I I guess I wish you know, I wish we could all never read our reviews. I just think it's not in the writerly nature, and she's one of those exceptions, and that some percentage of the people who say they do that are lying. <laughs> well, 
we talk about the, the rejection as the nascent writer, as the emerging writer, even like maybe it's high school, maybe it's that first college course where you guys connected, um, where you, that, that, one, that, that one rejection that just was riveting. And, and how, is it like that first broken heart? Is it like that individual who no. ripped your heart out? <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I I really think um you know like I um knowing we were going to be on this panel, and we were going to talk about rejection. I I was in Morocco and I got one of these online rejections that um it was just like you know who knows whether they liked it, didn't like it, whatever. And again, as um I don't know what your name is. Jody. Jo- Jody. 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 As he said, you know, uh, you don't really know what happened. And you fantasize the best or the worst, whatever. But um, I, I decided to sort of track my reactions, right? And the first is this kind of visceral feeling, you know, of uh, almost like a sucker punch, where um, you, um, you know, you feel it in your guts. And according to the guy, the Stephen Pressman, who wrote *The War of Art*, we are sort of biologically programmed to. Take rejection physically because of us being, you know, those were the times when we got cast out of the tribe. I don't know if I buy that, but um, I think it's all your ego. And um, so, you know, I first felt this feeling like I used to feel when I was in grade school at these dance classes we had to take where I was the only extra girl sometimes and when I was when there was one extra girl I was always the one holding up the wall right because I was tall and skinny and had big feet and everybody else was short and cute and bouncy and so you know everybody else would dance by which is somehow how it feels when you get rejected and everybody else is up there reading from their book right or you know and you feel like well everybody else is dancing in the dance but me and um and then my next reaction after feeling that feeling was fury who is the little idiot who read this piece and didn't understand that it was great for this stupid little magazine you know and then the third feeling which is always kicks in is Maybe it really isn't as good as I thought. You know, maybe it isn't finished. Maybe I should look at it again. Now, there, I think, is where you can take power over the whole process, right? Because I know other editors of literary magazines who tell me most of what they get isn't finished and is awful, you know? And so the question is, um, you really have to think, like, perhaps I should take a look at this again, you know, I've sent it out three times. It's gotten rejected because I do get comment, personal comments sometimes, you know, even now. But um, and you think like, well, why aren't they? You just assume they rejected it because maybe it wasn't good enough. Now, that's not as negative as it thinks because it gives you a chance to go back into it and make it better. And um, I really think that's um, a good way to think about it. Like, okay, and I have actually had the experience of revising things I've sent out many, many times and making one crucial change and the next place accepts it. Now, maybe it's not because I made the crucial change, but it seems to me that I did something that got my piece accepted. So I would suggest that. You know, the, the common wisdom is gets rejected, put it back in 10 envelopes and send it out again. I would say it gets rejected a few times, you look at it again. You think, is it really as good as I think? What about the style? 
you know, could I uh, actually make my sentences better? You know, what about the first sentence? Is this the one that's queering them, you know? So you can do a lot of stuff that um, maybe the themes aren't fully realized, you know? Maybe I should have, and you can't ask your friends or your teachers to read your stuff over and over and over and over again. They'll kill you. So you have to learn to develop some criteria of your own that will help you make decisions about whether what you wrote is the very best you can do or whether maybe you could do something to change it to make it better. I, I did, can I just answer what something, Anna, the, the nascent writer thing? I have a very distinct memory from maybe 10 years ago. Of I mean, my first publication was 2003, so it was probably more or less 10 years ago, of sobbing on the floor of my bedroom and saying to my husband, nobody even thinks it's worth the price of the ink to publish something of mine. And it was agony. And I thought, you know, it's never going to happen. I just suck at this. And I've been, you know, rejected and all the childhood rejections bubbled up to the top. And, And one thing I would say is don't try to be a more noble person than you are. Like one of the things, you know, one of the things I had to do to get through those years and still a little bit was cancel my subscriptions to Poets and Writers and AWP Writers Chronicle because they were full of other people winning stuff. And, and, maybe, and maybe, maybe it makes me a little person that when nobody was publishing my stuff, I couldn't bear to see those things, but I couldn't. And I had to admit to being a little person about that in order to move on, because there was nothing productive coming of my being consumed by jealousy and hatred. So I think (laughs) it's often true. Ted had a question. So how do you, I realize the answer is going to be personal to the responder, but... How do you differentiate when you're revising your own work between that instinct that, you know, this isn't actually working and I should try something different and the sort of baseline despair? Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I can jump in. One of, the, one of the things that was an interesting experience for me and not what I expected um, when my novel was out, and, and for novelists it's different because you get this flurry of activity and then nothing for five more years. So you kind of cherish the, the horrible brutality of those few moments. But anyway, um, so for I was surprised that the people who rejected me were so lovely. They were so, they responded in volumes about how how they had loved reading it and how what parts they thought were great. And all. I mean, I was, I was really... I was blown away by their kindness. And then I discovered the reasons why they were rejecting my book. Like one of them said, I have something in-house that's too similar because it has a mermaid. (laughs) I have no mermaid. I had an ocean voyage, but there was no mermaid. So that was too similar. Um, there There was a gentleman who said... I was captivated by the subplot, and I would love to see this again if you'd get rid of the plot and just write the subplot, which was caused by the plot. Um, there, there were people who said, you know, it's, it's just you know, a, a lovely, lovely book, and I don't really like this kind of thing. 
So, you know, the, there's the subjectivity of the reason that people get rejected. You can pour your soul onto the page, and you can shape it into this lovely, lovely, beautiful thing. And you can send it out, and people can say, not my cup of tea. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with what you wrote, and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that person's taste. It's, it's, I mean, it's a numbers thing. It's finding the person who knows what, what you mean and who wants to fight for that piece that you've sent. Because it's a battle for them. I found out for these editors that when they go to work every day, I, I thought they were you know, having cups of tea and, and reading things, and I thought, oh, what a nice job. But they're not. They're like, they're like arming up and getting ammunition so they can go fight for the books that they want published. Um, so where was I going with that? Oh, so, so you can kind of bolster your, you know, that feeling of despair with the knowledge that you know, your lovely thing that you made in not getting accepted somewhere might have absolutely nothing to do with the quality and the exceptionalness of your work. Does that help? Is that? I guess what I was going for is when, because sometimes you have instincts about what does have to change, and they're right, and that's good for the work. So how do you differentiate those things of like, I'm spotting something in my work that I want to change versus I suck, I suck, I suck? Well, that's the thing. If you, if you look at your work and you're, you're going, no, I'm not going to change that, I'm not going to fix that because it's really okay, that's, the, that's your cue that you need to fix that. Because you, you're, you know, we tend to re- resist those little rough spots that we don't know how to fix. But those are the ones that you have to fix. If somebody's telling you something about your work and you categorically disagree with them, then you have to stick with your work. You have to stick to what it is that you're creating, that you believe in. If somebody tells you that, you know, you, you know, it's like a mermaid, and you know it's not like a mermaid, you have to stick with your vision for what you know about being a human being. There's different levels of rejection. That's the other thing we're not really dealing with. Is you know, We could be talking, I mean, you may be talking about, are you talking about sending out a book, or are you talking about sending out a short story, or what are you talking about the despair and not knowing? What is the, the thing that you're actually trying to publish? Uh, it's not publishing, it's, it's just the writing. Um, it's before I send it out to anyone. Like, what, like, oh. how do I make it better versus oh. how do I not hate myself? You know? Oh, I see. So you're, you're, you're deciding to begin, even without getting rejected, you're dealing with the, I suck and maybe it could be better, right? Well, I mean, I think you kind of, with all writing, you're negotiating between different parts of your, your brain, I think. Like, one is the part that does the writing that has the creativity, and then the other part comes in and sort of, uh, judges what you've done and, and what's most helpful there is putting it aside for quite some time and um, and then and, and not getting into the the fact that your work is a reflection of your entire being your entire human spirit and everything you stand for in your appearance I mean and everything else about yourself I mean that's not what it is it's your it's your pro it's your um, it's your work right so um, I think the thing to do is um, you know, to to try to just, as I said before, you know, 
shut down those voices that are saying I suck and just look at the work with with as as much objectivity as you can muster. But, you know, if you send things, I mean, we're talking about different things. We're talking about sending stuff to literary magazines where you get back, the you know, they got 5,000 pieces to read and they don't have time. We're talking about sending out a book. Now, usually if you get an agent, um, the agent believes in your book, right, and believes that she can or he can sell the book. So you kind of have to trust that agent, you know. And if the um, I the last book I, I sent out, I asked the agent not to give me uh, the, the published the editor's comments um, unless she thought they would be useful to me. I mean, I didn't want to hear this stuff like, oh, it's not a, a mermaid, you know. I mean, I didn't think that would be helpful to me because I knew that I was, there was very limited revision work I was prepared to do. The agent loved the book. Um, she later quit agenting because she said all she could sell the previous year was one fluffy novel and she couldn't, like, you know, um, uh, contribute to the family income, you know, based on that. So um, you have to trust the agent with the book, I think. Let her deal with all those rejections and things. You don't necessarily have to read them. Um, um, but when it's you sending it out, and then to say a small publisher or to a, a magazine, then you do have to deal directly with that because there's no intermediary. So the process is different for different things. And I'd like I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to jump in on what you were saying about you know before before you're sending it out, and you're you're trying to find your way in in the actual piece itself about whether or not you. Um, you know, you should listen to that voice that says I suck or you should listen to the voice that needs work. The thing is, that that despairing voice that says, you know, I'm horrible and I can't write, that's the voice you should never listen to. The voice that says, you know, I get the feeling that this is too slow right here. If there's something specific that you can work on that you can do to improve the work, that's the voice to listen to. The voice that kind of attacks you and tells you that you're not good, that's the voice to ignore and say, I'm just going to do another draft. And also, you know, keep in mind what I said. It takes lots and lots of time of writing horribly and getting through that and maybe thinking you're a horrible writer before you start, you know, writing well. And um, so you have to have some patience with yourself, you know. I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day when it comes to writing. It's a... and, yeah. and, and I, I, I would just add that as much as you can banish these notions of horrible and good and bad writing and good writing from your head, the better, that, you know, very often, you know, a bad novel is just a novel that hasn't been drafted enough times. And if you think of it as an incomplete novel or a novel in process... You know, if I sent out a, a first draft of a novel, it would be I would have sent out a bad novel. But if I send out the whatever <laughs> draft, maybe it's not a bad novel. And and I just think that that this uh, this whole notion of good and bad and like and don't like and hor- you know, is there really horrible writing? Is there good writing? As those words are just useless to us, they don't help us. Right. You know, they're they're almost inevitable to come to mind, but they're actually not particularly helpful. Another thing to think about sometimes is perhaps you haven't found the 
the genre of writing that you're good at yet. I mean, a lot of people start with, say, fiction, and then they move to nonfiction, or they move to drama, and uh, or to poetry. You know, it's like there's many, many stories about well-known writers who thought they were fiction writers, and then, like Philip Lopate, and then, actually, he still does write fiction, but then he began writing essays, at which he was great, you know? So sometimes... Um, you know, moving, experimenting with different kinds of uh, forms, which lighthouses provide you many opportunities with, is, is also a good strategy, you know? Do you have, yeah. um, since we're talking about subjectivity, I wondered how you handle autobiographical material. You know, you always hear, don't ever write your first novel about autobiographical material. But I find it hard to believe that writers don't use autobiographical material. And I just wanted to know your approaches to that. Are you a vampire? <laughs> <laughs> you should tell your story about how you use the you know how you what you were really interested in in your fiction and how the vampire had to play into that, you know, the putting the person in the, you know. I'll put them in desperate situations yeah. in that. Yeah, just that the vampire. But no, I do. Uh, I I do look at look, excuse me. I look at things that happen around me and I put them in my stories. Um, the way that people react. Um, you know, that's how you draw. You're using your own life experience, and you and, and you want to ex- use that and then expand on that. Uh, you know, how do people react in certain situations? What is is? As I was thinking about this uh, last night, I was going home, and I'm like, well, how would you how would you write? It's very subjective. I mean, you think it's a very objective exercise to think about writing about going home. What do you see? You know, what is that experience like? And it's a very objective experience, but what you put on the page is very subjective depending on what, what, what you're seeing, what you're focusing on. Uh, even if you're going to try to paint it, you know, every painter is going to do it a different way. So everything in that, in that manner is, is subjective. Uh, however, I'm going to say that there is bad writing. I mean, on, on e-books, sometimes you do find horrible writing. Uh, that, that stuff that should have been edited or somebody should have said, you know, you suck right now. You come back in a day or two or a month or two and you won't suck quite as bad. Um, so that is, that is and, and it's a shame too because it's, you'll see people who have some, some interesting ideas or concept for a story that just don't have the writing skills or the chops to pull it off right now and perhaps they should have waited until they got better. No one's telling them. They just think, well, I have this opportunity to write and there's not an opportunity or they haven't taken advantage of other people telling them, you know, this is what you need to do and, and that. Um, now, um, let me think about, uh, there's a lot of things. And, um, for example, when I, when I had my second book sent to my editor, they, they always come back with what they call the revision letter. And every author, every novelist that I know always dreads this because you're a professional writer and you've spent a year writing this manuscript you know, and you sent it, and you're waiting for eight weeks for the editor to tell you, and they always start the same. Oh, we love this. This is so good. However, <laughs> and that however goes for about four or five pages, and uh, they're telling you what you're going to have to fix, and it's like the exploded view of your novel, your story. You got to take it apart, and you got to put it back together, and address those concerns. Um, and but one of the things that she said is that your character needs to have more depth to it. And I'm like, well, how am I going to do this? So I just started pulling stuff out that happened to me or that happened to my family. And I started putting them into that vampire world. And then people came back and go, oh, that was so smart of you. You thought of all that stuff. I'm like, I didn't think of it. I just plagiarized my life and I stuck it in there. I have an answer also slightly different. Um, 
what I how I describe my relationship the relationship between my writing and my life is that I write what I know but not necessarily how I know it and it, like an example I have um, I have a daughter who is disabled and she has expressive language disabilities and when she was little this meant I had to finish words for her and sentences and fill in for her and I always had to be thinking one phrase ahead so I had to know where she was going and then I also had to learn when to stop because I was making it too easy for her not to do it and I found this she's my third child and I found this sort of boundaryless relationship really interesting and sort of fiction worthy to me this idea of this over involvement but I didn't want to write about me and my daughter so I wrote about 65 year old twins and that's you know so in there in that story there is a twin who has this and has it from a birth injury which is the same with my daughter but it's it's not about us it's about these 65 year olds in Italy doing whatever but the the part of it that matters is from my life and that's you know that's sort of how i deal with it and i think one of the things that's that's one of the joys of writing is if you start with something that's really autobiographical and you begin to work on it and you begin to you know let it let it take its shape and let it grow and you know as you as you write it it changes you and you change and it so it can morph into something that can be, you know, related to what you started with. Um, but it'll be much more filled out because of the creative process. I'm just going to confess that every piece of fiction I ever wrote came straight from my life. And it was almost like not disguised. And um, I, I, I lived a very interesting life. I made sure I lived a very interesting life because I knew I didn't have much of an imagination. And, um, and after a while, I realized that maybe nonfiction was where I belonged. But fiction does give you certain leeways to change things if you feel like it, where with nonfiction, you sort of can't change things just because you feel like it. And I've learned, you know, if I'm writing about something that happened, say, between me and the guy I live with, I, 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 I plug in an old boyfriend from 20 years ago instead of him, you know? Um, which, but I actually do look at my life for things that are kind of fictional in nature, and I try to live an imaginative life, which is something we haven't dealt with the imagination, but maybe that's for next year. Next year. Next okay. year. <laughs> um, oh, did you have no. a final thought? No, I just no wanted, thoughts. I wanted to thank you guys, and um, thank you for your wonderful panel. Even though you didn't fight, really, there were some sparring and... Tiffany tried to start something. I tried. And she I tried. Um, she was pretty good at starting something, but yeah. we didn't really want to get violent. Yeah, right. And that good point. Good point because we're loving as a community. Um, I do want to let you know that there are books available from the panelists over there, and I highly recommend them. I think most of them would be willing to sign. Would you be willing to sign? Right. Um, Vicky's book didn't make it for some reason, but two of your craft books that you recommended are over there. Oh, That's what I was, I was told. Which by. two did I recommend? Oh. Dan. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's really great. That's really great. It's about poetry, but you know, I really feel that prose writers should read more about poetry. I agree, and that'll be on the panel next year. So thank you all for being here. Thank you guys. 
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.